The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church for study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC4. And this is Secret Church for episode four. Next, El Shaddai. He is God Almighty, or the Lord Almighty. The picture here, it's used actually seven different times as El Shaddai in Scripture. And then a a number of other times is just Shaddai being mentioned. I think 30 different times in Job it's mentioned that way. This is Genesis chapter 17 when God is is giving giving Abraham promises about how he's going to bless him and bring uh, a line through him that would be very fruitful. And the picture is... He's God Almighty. He is all-powerful, and not just all-powerful, but He is all-sufficient. Shaddai literally means Shah, the one who is, and die sufficient. He is all-sufficient. May God Almighty grant you mercy so that you will will let your other brother and Benjamin come back to you. As for for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. And in, in, in other words, he's saying no matter what happens, God is sufficient. He will grant what we need. As El Shaddai, God is saying two things. Number one, he's saying I guarantee my word. You look at Genesis chapter 28, verse 3, Genesis chapter 35, verse 11. This is God speaking to Jacob. And which, by the way, isn't that another great name for God, the God of Jacob? Isn't that a great picture? Jacob was not the most stellar dude that you've ever met before. He didn't have a lot to bring to the table. But God associated himself with him. I want to remind you, you're not the most stellar folks in the world. It's not about what you bring to the table. We are sinners in need of great grace. And God calls himself our God. So that's not even in the notes. We don't need to go there. Okay, I need to move on. I guarantee my word. He says, I guarantee my word as El Shaddai and I guarantee my provision. I will provide for you. God Almighty appeared to me, Lord Almighty. And there he blessed me and said, I'm going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. He guarantees his provision. That leads to this next name, Yahweh or Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. This is that beautiful picture we have in Genesis chapter 22 when God tells Abraham to take his only son Isaac, who he has provided for him and promised to him, and says, go and sacrifice your son on an altar. So he takes Abraham top of that hill, there is prepared to sacrifice him. And at that moment, when he's about to, Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horn. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This word provide, it's a beautiful word. It literally means to see before. This word for gyra means to see. In fact, just in the Latin, provide, pro, video, to see, video, before, pro. The picture is the God who sees everything beforehand. Now let that soak in. You, we will never have a need that was not already known in the mind of God. Isn't that good news? You find out you have cancer. Isn't it good to know that God saw that beforehand? You find out unexpected tragedy is hitting your life. Isn't it good to know that God sees before when your husband or your wife or your mom or your dad doesn't come back? Isn't it good to know the Lord will provide? The Lord sees before. He is Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Hosts literally means armies or multitudes. Sometimes used to refer to angelic armies. Sometimes used to refer to earthly armies. This picture in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3. I just kind of keep this in mind year after year. 
This man, talking about Elkanah, went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Almighty there, the Lord of hosts. That's the uh, Jehovah Sabaoth. When you look at, uh, at the picture in Amos there, he who forms the mountains, creates the wind, reveals his thoughts to man, he who turns dawn to darkness and treads the high places of the Lord of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. I mention that one because Jehovah Sabaoth is used most often in the prophets. And you see him listed there, how many times it's used. And there's so much significance there because the prophets is oftentimes God speaking to his people when they were in the middle of exile, God speaking to his people when they were going through difficult times, dark times, even when the Assyrians are attacking Israel. The Babylonians are taking down Judah. And their earthly armies are being destroyed. God is disciplining them, which, you know, this is in a sense not comforting that God is the Lord of armies because sometimes in the Old Testament he is taking pagan armies and he's using them to discipline his people. But the reality is why it's used all throughout the prophets is because he's reminding his people and he is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of armies and multitudes. And he has the power to deliver them. And they may be in exile, but God has the the power to deliver them as they turn back to him. He's the Lord of armies, the Lord of the multitudes, and God is the Lord who conquers any opposition. Now, I want to bring you back. First Samuel chapter 1 verse 3 is where we saw the Lord of hosts with Elkanah going to pray. This is where it's used again in that same chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 1. In bitterness of soul, Hannah, remember the story of Hannah? Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. She made a vow saying, and this is where it is, O Jehovah, Jehovah Sabaoth, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. I just want to bring that to bear. This is uh, a bit of just a um, I don't know, I wouldn't call it selfish picture, but the picture is, and we see this all over the beginning of the Bible. We see it with Abraham, like we just talked about. We see it with Hannah here, barren women who, who wrestle with God, the Lord of hosts here in First Samuel chapter 1 calling out for him to give them children. And I just, uh, as I was preparing this, we were celebrating Caleb's uh, two-year-old birthday and looking at my five-year-old son and we have a God who conquers any opposition, and that doesn't just apply to armies that we face. It applies to any opposition we face. He's the Lord of hosts. Jehovah Rophe, he is the Lord who heals. He's the Lord who heals. This is the picture in Exodus chapter 15 when God sweetens the bitter water and promises Israel that if they follow his laws, then he will protect them from the diseases that he brings on the Egyptians. He will, he will be the Lord who heals. Look at the very end of that verse. He said, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, don't miss this. God didn't promise to heal here. Instead, he said, I'm the one who heals. He said, I'm the one who heals. Come to me, I'm the one who heals. I'm the Lord who heals, the Lord who restores, the Lord who cures. I'm the one who does these things. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. You say, there are people, there are people in this faith family, people in our lives represented around this room who have struggled with diseases, cancer, whatever it might be, and, and didn't experience healing. So is he the Lord who heals? He is absolutely the Lord who heals. He is the Lord who heals for all of eternity. He is the Lord who heals ultimately. And even those who, whose body, when our bodies wither in this life, it's good to know we have a God who heals for all of eternity. He is Jehovah Rophe, the God who heals. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. 
Exodus chapter 17, it's a story when Amalek uh, stands, basically the Amalekites are in the people of God, in the way of the people of God, and Moses tells Joshua to go down and fight the Amalekites, and Moses stands on the mountain with the rod of God in his hand, and as long as he's lifting up the rod, this picture of a banner, then, then they're winning the, the, the battle, and Moses has people who are holding up his arms. That's the picture here in Exodus chapter 17. You get to the very end of that passage. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And the picture is, not just here in Exodus chapter 17, but the picture of a banner in that day really was kind of threefold. Number one, it's showing us that the Lord is our banner of identity. When you raise up a rod or a banner, this is, he's the one around whom we revolve. He's the one who unites us together. The Lord is our banner. Second, the Lord is our pole of gathering. Groups in that day, his armies would have flags that they would gather around. He is the one that we gather around. And third, the Lord is our flag of victory. I love this picture. You picture it. Now, this is where Old Testament stories just come to life. You picture your life. You're going through a battle in your life, and you get to the point where you're ready to raise the white flag and you're ready to sur surrender. You, you, you don't think like you th think you can go on anymore to see that the Lord is our banner. The Lord is our uh, banner of identity, our pole of gathering, and he is our flag of victory. It's an incredible picture. And Isaiah used the same picture when he talked about the coming Messiah who would be the conqueror in Isaiah chapter 11. And that day, the root of Jesse, this is talking about, Jesus will stand as a banner for the peoples. He is Jehovah Nisi. Uh, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Mikadesh, the Lord who makes you holy. Now this is a, a term that we see used all throughout, especially Leviticus, but all throughout the Old Testament to talk about how God sanctifies things. He makes them holy. In fact, this root, which means to set apart for divine use, to sanctify for, for divine use, is used approximately 700 times in the Old Testament. This is why he says in Leviticus chapter 20, he says, I am the Lord who makes you holy. And this is beautiful because the reality is not one of us can be holy in this room on our own. We need the Lord to make us holy. He must be this God in order for any one of us to be holy. That's why he says in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, why it's quoted over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, be holy because I am holy and I am the Lord who makes you holy. This is where we go back to the contrast between the Old Testament temple and the New Testament, our bodies. In the Old Testament, items used in the temple were sanctified for use before God. In the New Testament, our lives are the temples that are sanctified for use before God. God's temple is sacred, 1 Corinthians 3 says, and you are that temple. You are the temple. And the Lord who makes you holy. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. This is God when he comes to Gideon. Forming an angel, tough time going on. Gideon has this conversation with the angel, realizes this angel represents God. Gideon gets a little scared. He says, ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen an angel face to face. But the Lord said to him, this is what the Lord responded to him, peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord, and there called it, the Lord is peace. Judges chapter 6, verse 20 through 24. The picture is, God is our complete peace. The word shalom literally means complete, fullness, rest, which is what's in that next blank. God is our perfect rest. The picture is in our times in our lives when we are disturbed, 
when things are anxious within us. It's the picture of you we've got in Philippians chapter 4 of the peace of God that transcends all understanding, that guards our hearts and guards our minds in Christ Jesus. He is our peace. He is our rest. In the middle of, it's the picture I have in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41, this picture of the storms raging around the boat the disciples are in. And Jesus stands up, he lifts his hand, and he says, quiet, be still. And what you've got is a picture of peace amidst the raging tempest around. The Lord is our peace. Jehovah's the kid knew, the Lord our righteousness. Righteousness. And the picture here... To righteousness, is, it literally means to be, to be just or upright, means to be stiff, to be straight, to be right. And he is our righteousness. You see it mentioned there in, in Jeremiah chapter 23 when he talks about raising up a righteous branch to David, a king who will reign wisely. This is talking about Jesus and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. God demonstrates his righteousness to his people. You see this in Leviticus chapter 22 when he's making them holy. The only way he can do that is because he is righteous. He is completely right. He's completely just. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But the beauty of it is in Scripture, God not only demonstrates his righteousness, but second, God attributes his righteousness to his people. And this is the picture you've got there in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that Jesus is our righteousness. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become the what? The righteousness of God. He is the one who, who is our righteousness. He is our right. Christ is our righteousness before God. How can you stand before this God? Only through Christ our righteousness. Jehovah Shema, the Lord is there. This is a great picture. When you read the whole book of Ezekiel, you see that there is, it's not always a positive picture in Ezekiel. There's a lot of difficult things going on all throughout the book of Ezekiel, but there's hope in the end. When you get to the end, it talks about a lot of Ezekiel revolves around the temple and how the glory of God had departed from the temple. But you get to the very end of the book and it says, the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. The end of Ezekiel, the picture is, the Lord is there. And that we've talked about the name that dwells in the city or the name that dwells in the temple. The Lord is there. And so the picture is, now you've got to put this all together. Hope foretold in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is saying, the presence of God will return to his temple. That's what Ezekiel was promising. And you look at, you might write this down, just Ezekiel chapter 37 in particular. In Ezekiel chapter 37, he talks about how he's going to put his presence, literally his spirit, in his people. That's what he says in Ezekiel 37. That's hope foretold. Hope experienced in the book of Acts, the presence of God, is here in our lives. It's the picture in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, when the Spirit comes down upon the people of God. The Lord is here is the message of Acts 2 at Pentecost. The Lord is here with us. The Spirit is dwelling in us. uh, These tongues of fire, this picture resting on us. So you got his hope foretold in Ezekiel. He will be here. He will be with his people, in his people. Then you've got hope experienced in Acts. The Spirit lives in us. And then you've got hope anticipated in Revelation. There's coming a day when the presence of God will be our light forever and ever. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 22, there at the end, we don't need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun because the Lord God in and of himself will be our light forever and ever. Next, Jehovah-Rohi. Jehovah-Rohi, which means the Lord is my shepherd. And here's where I want you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 23. 
Psalm chapter 23. And I, uh, I just want to share with you, this is a, a psalm that I'm guessing is uh, familiar to many of us. Some people say it's almost uh, over-familiar or overused. I just don't agree. I don't think you can overuse Psalm 23. And what I'd like to do is uh, not long after uh, my dad passed away unexpectedly, I spent some time in Psalm 23 and just uh, reflected on some things that are in this chapter. And I just want to share real briefly, I'm going to just run through these, but some reflections on this psalm that were particularly... um, well, impactful for me. I'll read it to you. The Psalm chapter 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A few thoughts, reflections on Psalm 23. Number one, my shepherd's care is extremely personal. It's extremely personal. Do you see the personal pronouns all over Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul all throughout. Now, there's an emphasis all throughout the Old Testament on the people of God, but this is an emphasis on each of us as individuals. I remind you tonight when we talk about this God, he is your shepherd. Not just the person beside you, in front of you, behind you. He is your shepherd. His care is extremely personal. Second, my shepherd never stops giving to me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Sometimes the Lord takes away. But the Lord never stops giving. He never stops giving. He's our shepherd. Third, my shepherd's provision is based on his grace, not my ability. Did you catch it? He makes me lie down. He leads me beside quiet riders. He restores my soul. He guides me. He's doing the action here. Isn't it good to know that when we walk through difficult times, it's not about our ability to get through those times. It's about his grace that sustains us through those times. He does it. He is our shepherd. My shepherd's provision is based on his grace, not my ability. Fourth, My shepherd's grace results in my shepherd's glory. He guides me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. God has bound up his glory in providing for us as our shepherd. We walk through difficult times. He is making his glory known in the way he leads us as shepherd. Next, because my shepherd gives me everything, he leaves me nothing to fear. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. How can you have no fear? Because this shepherd, even in the face of death, is a conqueror. Even in the face of death, he's a conqueror. So you have nothing to fear. Because my shepherd gives me everything, he leaves me nothing to fear. Next, my shepherd not only sustains me, he satisfies me. I love this picture in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You got that picture? You are surrounded by enemies. And 
the shepherd prepares a feast, a table before you. The presence of all that is evil surrounding you, all that is not good, all that hurts, he prepares a feast in front of you. Not only sustains us, he satisfies us. Next, my shepherd pursues me with his love. Get the language here. Surely goodness and love will follow me. He follows after me with his love. Follow me all the days of my life. Finally, my experience with this shepherd will never end. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Ladies and gentlemen, you trust in this shepherd and he will never leave you or forsake you. There is coming a day, Revelation chapter 7, when we will serve him day and night in his temple. The sun will not beat upon us nor any scorching heat. Here's why. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be our shepherd and he will lead us to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Praise God. He is our shepherd. Okay. Jehovah Rohi is our shepherd. Now we're going to get into some of, the, some of the, the more titles for God, not as much proper nouns, proper names. We're going we're to go kind of fly through some of these. But Father, picture in Psalm 89, 26, you're my Father, my God, my rock, the rock, my Savior. Now here's what's really interesting. You've got to catch this. There's a contrast here. You look in the Old Testament. Only 15 times in the Old Testament is, is God referred to directly as Father. Only 15 times. One of them's there in Psalm 89. 15 times. That's the Old Testament. You get to the Gospels. You open up the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those four books. 15 times in the whole corpus of the Old Testament. These four books, over 100 and, uh, not over 100, exactly 165 times God is referred to as Father. 15 in the whole Old Testament, 165 times in the New Testament Gospels alone. And what's beautiful about it is all but one of those instances occur when Jesus is specifically teaching his disciples. So the picture is, this is a name that we call God. It's a name that is, that is a privilege for those of us who are followers of Christ to call him Father. The conclusion is followers of Jesus have the unique privilege of calling God Father. I want you to think about this. And we're going to talk about these attributes of God. But just already, El Elyon, God Most High, God Almighty, El Shaddai, the one who heals, the one who restores, the one who is our banner, all of these, these names that give us a picture of the greatness of God. And yet you and I, when we come before this God, do not have to bow our heads and, and say, oh God, ground of all being and all that he is, which he is, and we should attribute all those things to him. But we have the privilege of bowing our heads before him and saying, Father, Dad, Abba, what an amazing truth to look to this God and call him Father. May we never tire, never take for granted the privilege we have to bow our heads and say, Father. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.